This year's election is going to be a little different. Instead of one election day, we now have a voting season. That special time of year when polls can open weeks before election day. When your mailbox can become a voting booth. When how you vote is just as important as who you vote for. How, when, and where to cast your ballot depends on your state. Tis the season to be prepared. This year, plan your vote. With me on this edition of the Politocrat podcast is Manju. Cole Kearney. She is the executive director of A3PCon, and it's great to have her back. We're going to be talking about a number of issues, particularly about toxic masculinity and about misogyny. Uh, and uh, I want to say thank you very much for being here once again, Manju. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me back, Omar. This is a real honor and privilege. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, a lot has happened, of course, in the last <laughs> uh, two or three months, three months since uh, I think you were last on here. Um, and one of them, of course, is Kamala Harris becoming the vice presidential nominee with Joe Biden, um, an historic moment in our country. I would like to ask you um, how you react to it and, and uh, how, you know, tell me how you feel about it all. Well, it was really exciting for me personally. Um, you know, she wasn't my candidate during the primary process, though I had a great deal of respect for her and really admired um, her background and her work. And and yet I was just um, really floored in a lot of ways to see someone, a woman of color, um, who uh, also hails from my community, um, being um, half South Asian, and to have a mother. I mean, in fact, you know, the more that we learned about her in the days following her uh, selection, there were so many parallels to my own life and seeing, um, you know, that she really had a trailblazing mother, um, which I also did, um, someone, um, you know, who came to the United States, um, you know, several decades ago, pursued a career in the sciences um, and the uh, health professions. And, you know, in terms of raising her mother, raising two girls, my own mother raising three girls, uh, just felt like there were a lot of parallels. And, you know, to what was interesting, um, I spoke to one reporter from uh, a columnist from the LA Times, and we were just even talking about some of the imagery and to see pictures of her with her um, Indian relatives in India and to see her wearing a sari, right, was, um, it just brought back so many memories for me too in the sense of like, you go to India and, um, you know, you, you play a certain role, you play a part, and some of that is, you know, wearing clothing that is Indian and, and what that means. And so um, there were just a lot of these um, commonalities, which made me feel um, especially close to her. Also, of course, that she's an attorney as well as am I. And so um, just thinking of the ways that I could really relate to her mm -hmm. and relate to her experiences. And, and so I think there comes with that too, uh, a sense of like wanting to protect her from what's going on. Um, and some of the vitriol, uh, but also having extreme pride in her as a candidate, as, um, also um, a black woman, you know, and she said very proudly that her mother, her South Asian mother raised her to be a proud black woman. Um, so that's what went into it for me. Great, great. I, 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 um, I can tell you, I actually cried because I am I, I, um, on a personal note, you know, I um, just feel that it's important to celebrate these kinds of moments in, in history, we have a pandemic going on, 
Um, all of these things are happening. The uh, mortality rates for black people are through the roof, for brown people are through the roof, for native people are through the roof. And this moment of, of, of Senator Harris being named, and there was a lot of pressure from many of us um, to make sure that Joe Biden did put a black woman particularly um, right. in, in that position. And so there was a lot of, of that pressure. It wasn't just that Joe Biden you know, woke up one day and did this. There was a lot of pressure on him um, to do that from many of us. But this moment of that moment of her being announced as the vice presidential candidate with all of these things going on in this calendar year broke the dam for me. It was this one moment of joy that was also a cathartic moment and it released something else for me personally. So I can tell you that's how I reacted to it. It was a joyous moment, tears of joy, but also in the context of this crazy year that we've been part of, oh my goodness, Anyway, that's just the way I felt about it. And I'm glad that you um, pointed out uh, the South Asian aspect of this because that's very significant as well. And it should not be uh, diminished or undercut by any stretch. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I'm hopeful that it'll um, bring together our communities in a way that we haven't come together. Mm. And I think for a lot of um, South Asian immigrants to, um, you know, they like to see uh, members of their community doing well and their kids doing well. And so I want them also to see that, um, you know, we are on uh, sometimes similar paths, not always, and for a lot of reasons, um, South Asian immigrants have had a lot of privilege uh, that our African-American sisters and brothers have not had. But to see that we um, we can come together. And I do want to just point out at this point, too, that um, while there is uh, significant anti-blackness, unfortunately, in the South Asian community, and I want to call that out, of all Asian-American communities, South Asians uh overwhelmingly in the same numbers as as blacks actually voted for president obama mm. in both uh 2008 and 2012 so mm. i'm i'm hoping that with a few of these things that um these candidates that through electoral politics we will see alignment and we'll see our communities coming together something that is very very important um and you talk about um the constituencies of the community of our communities voting overwhelmingly in, in that way. And, and um, I am hoping also that we're with 19 days now until this election um, concludes, because of course now over 17 plus million people have already cast their vote. And as people who right. listen to this podcast regularly know, I say vote early. Uh, it's very important. Um, so I, I do think that with these next uh, 19 days, um, we will find out these voting days left. Um, I, I do believe that our communities will end up um, voting overwhelmingly um, in favor uh, of, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, one of the things I do want to ask you about just briefly, Manju, is about on the heels of talking about Kamala Harris, the representation uh, in politics of women in terms of in the federal uh, layers of government, whether it's Congress, where there's a lot of women of color who are in the House of Representatives, there need to be more. Um, we only have, uh, as I know, one, a, uh, two Asian female senators, uh, Maisie Hirono uh, in Hawaii and uh, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. They are the two that I can think of. I do not think there are any others. And um, we have uh, one black female senator, only the second ever in the U.S. Senate. And I think that may be it. I am not sure. Um, can you if talk? If you count Kamala Harris as um, South Asian, then you have three Asian Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Touche. Terrible. Omar, come on. Yes. Thank you, Manju. Yes, we have three. Um, can, can, can you talk about that? Because we only have three at the moment, but in, but in Congress, there are so many. I, I wonder what your reaction is. Why do you think that there are 
so many or many more representatives, female representatives, you know, of color, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, Ayanna Presley, in the seats of the House of Representatives, and yet we've had this struggle in the Senate um, to have women of color, black women, Asian women in these positions. Any thoughts on that for you? Yes, I mean, you know, of course, a lot of it comes down to just demographics. And, you know, the districts that these women uh, that you mentioned, um, uh, Congresswoman Presley, Omar, uh, Tlaib and others, is that, you know, they are able to win in districts that look like them, essentially. Uh, and um, now I want to say, though, even though that's true, we also do have Asian American women representing white districts. So if you look at um, Pramila Jaypal uh, from Washington, she actually comes from a majority white district. Mm. So um, I know that um, with Asian American candidates, we've sometimes been able to transcend uh, those demographic limitations within districts. Um, I think it's much harder in a statewide election, right? Mm -hmm. to, we still are grappling with um, issues around, um, you know, the intersectionality issues that we see around race and gender. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, given the fact that women, you know, it's only been 100 years in the United States that white women were allowed to vote. And then for women of color, you know, it's much more recent a phenomenon. So looking at that and then looking at to um, the ability to vote, uh, being allowed free and fair elections, um, it's going to take some time to be able to do that um, on a statewide level, though, you know, kudos uh, to, you know, Tammy Duckworth, especially um, uh, being able to do that out of um, Illinois and then um, with Gamala Harris here in California. So you certainly see in liberal, uh, more liberal states uh, that happening. Um, I mean, I guess you can point to the fact that in conservative states, you have had some South Asian uh, or Asian American representation with Nikki Haley. Uh, being the governor um, of South Carolina. But then again, you know, there's some um, interesting racial dynamics there in terms of her own um, identity and, and what she has espoused, both on a personal level as well as on a political level. Yes. And, and, and what's also interesting, I find, uh, Manju, is that if it, is, if it happens that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win this election, there's obviously a choice that Gavin and Newsom, uh, Governor, <laughs> Governor Newsom has to make. Um, right. And whether or not he fills that Senate seat here in California with a woman, a woman of color specifically, or any person of color in general, I, I, you know, that to me will be a very interesting thing. Should Joe Biden and Kamala Harris come through and win this election in uh, 19 days? That's exactly right. I think uh, certainly um, uh, advocates in our uh, communities of color need to um, encourage, if not push him, to make a decision to select an individual who represents our communities. I think uh, having a Latina um, senator would be fantastic, um, uh, a Latino senator as well. And I think there's so many great candidates or possibilities out there um, that I certainly hope he um, he does the right thing in, in filling that seat. <laughs> right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, I find very interesting uh, also, and I do want to get your thoughts on this, is what we have seen, or what we did see last week at the vice presidential debate uh, between uh, Senator Harris and Mike Pence. And you had a moderator named Susan Page, who, of course, is the Washington bureau chief at the USA Today newspaper. 
She moderated that debate. And what you saw is Mike Pence interrupting uh, Senator Harris at least 16 times and also talking over the moderator as well. So you have this uh, male figure um, who is vice president at the moment talking over a female senator and talking over a moderator who is also female. And quite frankly, you also have the moderator talking over and restricting Senator Kamala Harris. So you've got this dynamic, white male talking over black female, black, white female talking, a white female talking over black female, and also the white male talking over the, the white female. Can you just, <laughs> I don't know how you unpack that or what, or what you'd like to say about that, but that was not lost on me that Kamala Harris seemed to be debating not one person, but two people. That's exactly right. And um, I happened to be watching that debate um, with a group of uh, friends who are South Asian women professionals. And as we were watching it, I think it resonated with each and every one of us um, that those were our experiences, right? Being constantly interrupted by the white male in the room, right? Having, unfortunately, um, to have to essentially fight for time with uh, both the white male as well as the white female. Um, so it sadly was no surprise to us that this was happening, um, but that it was just now coming to sort of center stage for a lot of Americans. And I know that when, um, you know, the polls, uh, pollsters asked uh, individuals afterwards, you know, who won, what did you, you know, what happened, you saw a huge divergence, right, between women and men, and also in terms of their response, even of, I think, white women seeing her and seeing how that she was interrupted. Um, and I think, you know, we have a couple of different things going on there. Certainly uh, with Mike Pence, there's toxic masculinity. We know that he holds uh, abhorrent and extremist views when it comes to women, that he can't be in the room with a woman other than his wife. Um, in modern day America, that's uh, medieval. Um, and it's oppressive because if you're a person of power and you say that you are not going to be in the room with another woman, you have now excluded women from access and from opportunities for leadership, right? As the vice president, if you're not going to do that. Um, and so it's no surprise to me um, that he, uh, you know, he spoke the way he did. It's also no surprise that men thought he won or had no problem with what he was doing because they do it all the time, right? That's their modus operandi in most meetings and businesses. And in fact, you know, with this group of women, we've talked many times about how we have to not only go outside of our comfort zones, but actually take on roles that are much more aggressive um, and assertive than we might want to at the cost of even being or seeming rude because we can't otherwise get our fair share or our fair airtime. And you saw, I think, Kamala Harris have a great response to that, which is, I am speaking. I am speaking, right? Um, and being very clear so that she could claim back that time uh, without having to come across, um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, that's part of suppressing women's voices is you, you don't give them the airtime when they assert themselves, then you also try to take it away by um, saying that they're being aggressive or saying, you know, uh, criticizing them um, for the way that they're acting. And, you know, and that came from women on the right, like Megan Kelly and others. Right. So interesting dynamics. Very much so. Very much so. And, and what, what also was no accident either, um, was that I think within 24 hours of that, of course, you had, uh, Trump, um, saying all these really, uh, bad things, misogynistic things about Senator Harris, 
as he has done throughout uh, the last 50 years. He's done this to black women in particular, women of color specifically as well, and, and, and uh, some white women as well. He's ascribed these very misogynistic and very toxic, toxically masculine types of things that are very destructive. Um, and, the fan, and the thing is, is that we also know that in that debate, Senator Harris actually did end up getting less time and one of the things that's really the most infamous thing that I can remember, mind you, is that during the time that Senator Harris was speaking in one of the moments that she had, uh, Pence interrupted her and the moderator, Susan Page, never said, Mr. Vice President, it's Senator Harris's time to speak. She never did that. She never did. Contrasting the previous week where um, Chris Wallace did step in and say, this is Vice President Biden's turn to speak. And that struck me too, that she did not step in. And when he interrupted her for that period of time, and she tried to finish her thought, Susan Page then came back and said, Senator Harris, you've got to let Mike Pence have a turn to respond. It's just (laughs) unbelievable. In in the same way that I think white supremacy affects all of us and turns some communities of color and individuals against each other, right? Um, So within even a community of Asians, we um, criticize one another in, you know, ways that also can be racist, right? Or we have uh, anti-blackness. With mass, you know, toxic masculinity and misogyny, you see the same thing happening. It works on women as well as on men, right? So it's not as if women uh, do not enable uh, toxic masculinity, they absolutely do. Uh, And even um, sometimes in ways that probably are not apparent to them, right? Or unconscious. And so you saw um, Susan Page doing that, which is in this setting, she probably is still under you know, beliefs around who gets to talk, who should talk, who's an authority figure. Um, and on top of that, I think when you have issues around sort of the, the cult of even handedness that the media, uh, mainstream media falls into, that uh, they overly side with the conservatives or the Republicans in an effort to seem fair or even handed. And you saw that with Chris Wallace, most notably, right? Um, How much more time even did Trump get and how much more sort of vile and remarkable were, was, were his interruptions. Um, So I think with, with Susan Page, while it was not, we did not see overly aggressive behavior or uh, rude, um, behavior in the same way that we saw from Trump. I mean, Pence is basically a legitimizer for what we have uh, in the White House, which is a misogynist sociopath. Um, And so you need someone, you always need someone to legitimize that person. And I think you've seen it with uh, authoritarian figures in the past. They always had that right hand man who did that. And so Pence does that. He makes it um, really digestible. He makes misogyny digestible for um, and behind a veil of uh, uh, religiosity and other things um, justifies or legitimizes it. We have seen this toxic masculinity uh, for centuries. And I think if, if anybody wants to pretend, I mean, there's no way you can pretend that this does not exist, particularly in a patriarchal society where this really flourishes uh, exponentially so. Um, You just look at what we've been seeing in the last few weeks, even with the last four years, the attacks on uh, uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in particular, on uh, Representative Elon Omar as well, and and Rashida Tlaib and uh, and Ayanna Presley and uh, any number uh, of women in power um, and also we've seen things even, uh, you know, clearly uh, like Brad Poscale, um, the uh, Trump representative who um, had been arrested for domestic violence. I mean, that's really what it was. It, it was unfolding as, oh, he was self-harming. But what it really was, 
was not about self-harm at all. It was he was abusing his wife in a in, in violently physically abusing her. And he had guns and he had all these things and the police were called on him. And that's what was going on. And um, this thing, this toxic masculinity, Jason Miller, another guy who's now resurfaced. If people who listen to me do not know the story of Jason Miller and what he's done with to women, Google him, search Jason Miller, and it will make you want to take three showers. It's horrible. <laughs> so I hope, you know, my whole thing, mind you, is just talking about this, how pervasive this is on an everyday level, but in power right now and how dangerous that is as well, because it enables and emboldens more men to do the very same thing if they weren't already doing it. Right. Um, and thank you so much for pointing that out. That's been one of my pet peeves in the last few weeks around Brad Pascal, which is that, yes, we're again focusing on his trauma. What about the trauma that he caused to someone else? And um, but but we always have to center white males. Right. That's what we've learned over the last four years. And whenever they don't get all of the attention, they fight back. And, and we're seeing sort of that last battle now. I hope it's the last one, um, uh, at least in my lifetime, which is you see um, this you see a couple of different groups who are emboldened by Trump, and that is non-college educated white males along with uh, the white supremacist faction of uh, the Republican Party and the two of those getting together, right? And Trump is the embodiment of all of their hopes, desires, and wishes, uh, as well as their fears and anxieties. They know that they are not playing the same role um, which they played over centuries in America. Uh, which is the dominant economic role, which is the dominant role in academia, in uh, business, in finance, uh, in health, in all of these sectors, right? They can just see it, even if these men themselves are not in those arenas. Um, and so Trump says that's why we have to make America great again, because we need to go back to the time where you could you know, essentially lynch black men without a problem that we want to go back to the, you know, he's even evoked some of those um, racist ideas around like, oh, those times when we could just, you know, beat the crap out of somebody uh, because that's the time they want to go back to when they prevailed. Um, and what you see with Trump, I think that's so interesting is as pointing to women of color because they are then the embodiment of a new America. Right. And they're an embodiment of something that Trump and his cronies and his followers don't have, which is competence, intellectual rigor, um, the ability to problem solve, the ability to uh, create what is systemic policy change um, that they know, you know, they know that climate change is there. They won't tell you that. They also know that COVID exists, right? And we've no learned now in multiple settings, uh, whether it's from the Bob Woodward tapes, uh, whether it's from the hearing, you know, the closed door hearings that some of the senators or Congress folks got early on. And we know from the Hoover Institution event, right, that came out this week that a lot of wealthy um Republicans were notified about how serious this was uh, and nobody telling the rest of America. So back to my point, they know that these things exist, but they have managed to convince their constituents otherwise and then not have to problem solve. Whereas you see with women of color in these roles, they are ready, right? They have the Green New Deal. They have plans for how to deal with COVID, with um, police violence, with all of these issues. So simply being an ostrich and putting your head under the sand doesn't make a problem go away. And I think that's why you see that especially vitriol, right? And, and I want to just point to the fact, too, that Trump has done this on an international level as well against Merkel, against the prime minister of New Zealand. 
two other women who are problem solvers, right? They have virtually no cases of COVID because they did the right things and they took the right steps. And so those kind of um, actions and consequences especially make Trump and his followers angry because it's it shows their ineptitude and their impotence. And Trump wants, never wants anyone to know how impotent he is, right? Um, and we need to make that, and I think just their very being um, gives evidence to his impotence. Uh, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, and I, I'm really actually very glad that you mentioned the international stage because you anticipated what I was going to ne- next ask you, <laughs> which is about the international stage and this confluence or this very diametrically opposed situation. We have female leaders around the world who are leading, most in most cases, leading very, very strongly and very well in, in, in countries and doing so with a really direct problem-solving approach versus these strongman authoritarian governments that are all pretty much all male-oriented, male-led, that are destroying things. We see Orban in Hungary. We see uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Putin, uh, of course, in Russia, um, MBS in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I could go down the whole list, right. right? And then you've got Merkel. You did have Theresa May in the UK, but you have Merkel. You have, uh, I mean, I can go all, you know, Ardan, as you mentioned, in, in New Zealand, and a whole host of others on the African continent um, and elsewhere who are leading and leading with the kind of problem-solving approaches in Finland and other places that get results and actually result in healthier populations of people and everybody doing better in the world. That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, it just sort of speaks to that level of sort of selfishness and um, the... Uh, I guess what I would call provincialism, right, Mm. is like only looking at your base, only looking at the communities that look like you and not really um, understanding that you're serving all Americans or all the people in your country. Mm. Uh, And I think that's, again, you know, part of um, the Trump dynamic is that he's never really sought to do that and in fact has inflamed um, tensions, not only racial, but also, uh, gendered. When you look at, um, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, he has gone after her in a way that he hasn't gone after other democratic governors. Right. And, and that's why you saw the Wolverine watchman, you know, take a lead from the president and say, Oh, now we have license to go after, this person and the fact that they even had an operation and plans to kidnap a sitting governor, right, of one of the most populous states uh, in the country, and uh, to kidnap her and then uh, to kill her, uh, I think really speaks to the level of misogyny we have in the United States, so that it's not even just interpersonal, it's now on a wider stage of um, going after these political leaders um, in every which way. And we saw the beginnings of that, right, when they all showed up with their friends and brethren in the um, Capitol, right, a number of months ago, uh, in this threatening and menacing way with all of their artillery. Um, So they've really, um, you know, I think the way in which Trump has successfully weaponized um, the misogyny and brought it into the real world, I think what the man is a master at is taking rhetoric and putting it into action. So uh, even in his personal life, the man has always been a liar and yet convinced millions of Americans that he was a Uh, successful businessman in the uh, political sphere, he takes that rhetoric in his own lives and is able to get 
people his pawns essentially to then take the action so he doesn't have to take it himself right he's not going to go and actually shoot or kill the governor or kidnap her but he has an Im- his impact is in his words and inciting the violence so that others can carry out what are in my estimation his true desires yeah, I mean, your example of Governor Whitmer is definitely one that stands out very clearly and, and very um, starkly. But this is something, again, that we are seeing happen in so many different places. Lots of threats against uh, female politicians. I mean, some of that is happening, had had been happening before. The Seattle mayor, Jenny Durkin, had been getting a number of threats. A lot of it, again, started uh, a, a lot of it initiated by Donald Trump. Um, and what you speak of, uh, mind you, for some of the uh, audience members who may not uh, be aware, is stochastic. Is this st- st- like you have something called stochastic terrorism, where someone says things, you can't necessarily directly tie them to it. However, because of the position of power that they have, there are people out there that they realize that will act upon what they say. And that's an example of, I'd say, stochastic misogyny in this case as well. Um, The blatant misogyny, but then the act that, as you said, someone will carry out the true desires of what Donald Trump wants. And this group who people mislabel these groups uh, as militia, um, they're not militia at all. These people are terrorists. They're violent. They're misogynic. They're misogynist. They're racist, violent, terroristic people. These are not Militia, and one thing that frustrates me, mind you, is there was an opportunity, and I know that the corporate news media won't do this, but nonetheless, just to put this on the record of our discussion, Mm -hmm. there was an opportunity last week for the corporate news media to discuss misogyny, to discuss these things, but no, they just reported what happened with Governor Whitmer and the plot, the alleged plot. Oh, it's just a news story, and it's just Dems and Republicans and, you know, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just Trump talking to a, that that woman in Michigan, that woman governor. I mean, there was no attempt to have any framing that week around what, you know, the toxic masculinity that could have been talked about. You know, the day or two before you had that vice presidential debate that we've just talked about. There was no attempt to contextualize this and look at these issues of toxic masculinity and misogyny, especially in power. And how that is really leading to a degeneration and has done for a long time in the society. No attempt to join the dots at all. (laughs) Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, The failure of uh, the mainstream media to contextualize and really, you know, we would hope that journalists would like ourselves be students of history right and when you look at how uh these folks are really laying the groundwork uh both in terms of race as well as gender um for significant policy changes that will take us back uh a hundred years and if i can just share We are living right now in what I would consider sort of, I'll I'll take three different examples um, on race um, to to provide that context. The uh, 1870s and 80s, the laying of the groundwork against Chinese Americans, right? Calling them dirty, uh, unhygienic, all of these things, the yellow peril led to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, something ha- similar happened to South Asian Americans, which most folks don't know, in the 1910s before we had the Asiatic Barred Zone Act that prevented uh, most Asian Americans from coming to the United States and immigrating. Um, and with those two, and then if you also look at what's happening, um, and so we're seeing that now, right? You're seeing that dehumanization going on, uh, all of those subreddits. You see, um, I'm glad you mentioned sort of sarcastic terrorism. I was just on a webinar yesterday with researchers from Canada who are looking at this very issue in terms of, you know, what's being um done with imagery and other things, uh, comedic, they called it comedic, um, sort of political speech that, you know, people are sort of poking fun at, 
Asian Americans related to COVID. But no, what we are in is 1930s Germany, right? This is exactly what happened with the Jews. And what we're seeing on the, uh, in terms of the gender side, we are now about to have a Supreme Court that is going to not only undo Roe, uh, that's actually one of the least of my concerns. They are going to make contraception illegal. We are talking about the Griswold versus Connecticut case that established uh, the right to privacy and allowed unmarried people to get contraception. Uh, it's surprising that that only happened in the 1960s, right? But But we're talking about undoing Griswold. And so what that means for us is that women have very few choices about what to do with their bodies, um, that they are um, under the constant, uh, constant surveillance uh, of government in terms of those actions with their bodies. Uh, and so not being able to have and enjoy sexual relations with their partners. Um, and then of course the ramifications of then not being able to take jobs in the sciences and the corporate sector, not being able to be political leaders, right? These are all connected. And so it's not simply that they quote, believe in the right to life. Um, it's actually that they wanna take us back uh, to an earlier era where there were no women congresswomen, there were no women senators, um, because that is a threat to everything that Trump and his voters stand for and what they want and desire. So these are all the connections are so important for us to make because otherwise we're just fighting small skirmishes or battles. This is a war. Um, and I hate to use the war metaphor, but it really is. It's a hundred year war, right? Because we are going, uh, it is part of a long-term strategy. And when you look at the Federalist Society and others, they've been planning this. This has been in the works for many, many years. Uh, and because women are also part of misogyny, they play a role uh, in Federalist Societies, in Fox News and other places, and really bringing to bear uh, that patriarchy, putting it back into a place uh, where it takes significant hold of all of our lives. Definitely, definitely saw that um, in full swing at the RNC convention. Uh, people with 1972, a woman with a 1972 pin, you know, uh, on her lapel. Um, you anticipated the last thing I was going to ask you about, which was the Supreme Court and uh, Amy Coney Barrett. What better way for the patriarchy to flourish than to put one of its operative agents in there, a woman, to do the bidding of the patriarchy at the great expense and pain and of and cost of women all over the country. As you point out, so many women and men, uh, quite frankly, but women most directly because they lose their agency, their autonomy over their bodies, the decision-making over their bodies and the real-world ramifications that has, um, what better way for the patriarchy to do its last, to stick its last uh, nail in a coffin or whatever you have, whatever have you, by putting someone like this on the Supreme Court? You know, there's, oh, she has a family and she's got the two black children that she adopted. and But she can't answer these basic questions about things that affect those black children or things that affect women or women of color uh, overall. It, it's just... Astounding, and you like you said, the Federalist Society, they aren't some nice little cuddly society. These folks have done so much damage, this dark money and everything else. I could go on for another hour. Um, your your thoughts about this? I mean, you've just talked about it a bit, but Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, um, this is really going to be that war that you're talking about. Um, this is really serious stuff that people really can't just say this is just another Supreme Court pick. This is something more than just that. Right. And I think we really need to look at all of the structural forces at play here, right? Which is that, you know, why are we limited to nine seats on a Supreme Court, right? Why are we limited to lifetime appointments? All of those structural mechanisms maintain patriarchy and white supremacy, right? 
because they allow older folks. We know that cult, that politics follows culture by 20 to 40 years. And by maintaining these uh, old folks, right, uh, what is the average age of a Supreme Court justice, right? Um, it's around the mortality or the, you know, the, the uh, age at which most Americans are already dead. Uh, and those are the ones that are actually making decisions for us. Um, and so I want to point to that, to originalism, which is another, you know, um, really a veil to white supremacy, right? It gives the Federalist Society and their cronies the ability to say, oh, you know what? We don't uh, have views. We just believe in the views of people in the 1700s. I mean, what hogwash is that, right? Right. Um, Barrett herself would not have been able to vote. She would not have, she would be chattel. And, and let me just get to something there, too, which is just so interesting. So Republicans have made a big deal of her religion and also have now disallowed any conversation about her religion. Right. But I want to point out something very interesting about that. And there was a little bit of press a few weeks back when her name was first floated, which is she belongs to a sect that believes that women have to answer to their husbands and have to follow the lead, uh, really have to obey their husbands. Wow. They are at the service of, and that women, there's even a segment of it where they think that uh, if women are not allowed, cannot bear children, that they can rely on essentially other women to bear their children. It, it's, uh, you know, you should check it out. Whoa. Um, this was actually in the Washington Post or New York Times about her beliefs. But, you know, Democrats chose not to go that way. But you see now she is the personification then and the embodiment of what the her views are going to take us on a policy and structural level, right? They want women not to make their own decisions and they want them to have to answer to men, uh, in this case, not their husbands, but to the government, right? For decisions around bodily integrity. Um, and they want women to have to get married to have rights. I mean, there are all sorts of things, you know, again, back to the Griswold and the um, contraception cases. So, so she really truly is that personification uh, in her personal life of the things that uh, Trump and the Republicans want to see nationwide on policy levels. And I think that's something really important for us to remember. I really appreciate your context because that is so very important. Um, the media is certainly, you know, has its camera on zoom in focus all the time. It's always zoomed right in on the person, but never pulls back so that we see the whole context and the whole picture around the frame. It, and that's deliberate, exactly. of course. Um, gosh, I, I, I could sit here and talk for hours with you. I, I know that we both have things to do, um, but it's been a wonderful pleasure once again, uh, Manju. Uh, thank you so very much for coming on the Politocrat podcast today. I've been speaking with Manju Kulkerni. She is the executive director of A3P Con. Um, it's been really wonderful having you on and uh, really been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Same for me. It's a terrific conversation and I so enjoy being here. Um, thank you for what you're doing in this wonderful podcast. Uh, really enjoy listening to it uh, and really enjoy speaking with you. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Of course, you know what I've been talking a lot about lately on the Politocrat Daily Podcast, and it's early voting, the importance of voting early. You can't get away from it. I think the ads are everywhere, urging people to plan their vote, to vote early. You've heard some of these ads, these very same ads on this very podcast. And by the way, I thank you for listening. And I also want you to do something for me, if you could, please make sure you vote early. 
And make sure you pop by the Politocrat online store. It has a range of colorful vote early t-shirts designed by yours truly in different colors with more colors to come. So send a colorful and important message to vote early. A range of t-shirts in different colors and for women, men, unit, unisex. These t-shirts are available right now at the Politocrat online store in different colors. Seven at the moment, seven different colors and more to come. And affordable prices as well. And in all different kinds of sizes. So if you want to send the message to vote early and every time, believe me, when I wear this shirt, I always get people coming up to me or remarking about the shirt or about their agreement that it is important to vote early. It never fails. Every time I wear these shirts, I always get some kind of response. And even if I don't, I know that people who see the shirt get to thinking, vote early. The seed has been planted. And it is so important now more than ever before in this very highly consequential election. Elections really do have consequences. So make sure you vote early and make sure you stop by the Politocrat online t-shirt store and shop the Vote Early t-shirt color collection exclusively from yours truly at the Politocrat at the-politocrat.my shopify.com thank you this year's election is going to be a little different instead of one election day we now have a voting season that special time of year when polls can open weeks before election day when your mailbox can become a voting when how you vote is just as important as who you vote for. How, when, and where to cast your ballot depends on your state. Tis the season to be prepared. This year, plan your vote. My special thanks once again to Manju Cole Kearney. She is the executive director of A3PCon and she can be found on Twitter and I will include her information and a link to her organization in the liner notes of this episode. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. Remember to vote early. I'm Omar Moore.